0: Welcome to episode 47 of Expanding Beyond. Uh, Monica still has one night in Italy. I'm still back. I'm already back in Germany where it's starting to get cold and rainy and fall. And yeah, I guess we'll have a more regular schedule is what uh, this comes down to. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the sad and boring winter is coming, so along with TV series and video games, you're going to get a little bit more of us.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) But we also learned, or Urban told me a couple of days ago, that August was our best month in terms of uh, listeners. So thank you, everybody.
0: Well, second best. Second best, But still, the best one was a long time ago. Yes. (laughs) Pretty cool. I'm not sure what we did to deserve this. Maybe everyone was on holiday and bored and needed (laughs) something to do.
1: (laughs) But I also got a nice message from a former colleague of mine, Omar, uh, telling me that he came across our podcast and and he listened to the last two episodes and he said that he really enjoyed them. Um, And that means a lot because Omar is one of the best engineers I've ever worked with. So it's a. for me, it's a badge of honor that you said something like that. So thank you.
0: Yeah, that's always nice to hear um, from from listeners because we don't normally get any feedback. We just get some numbers of downloads and that's about it. But it's really nice to hear from someone if they yes. actually enjoy it or not.
1: <laughs> so here we are. What happened to you this summer?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I was on holiday a bit. <laughs> but I guess that's a bit beside the point before the holiday uh, we had a round of what we call 90 day planning at the company Mm -hmm. so this is sort of the second time where we say hey all the the product department and all the teams to get um, decide what they will focus on for the next 90 days Uh, so roughly three months Um, so it's not fully in quarters we're sort of fortunately or unfortunately, a month off. Okay. <laughs> so our third quarter or f- ends somehow in November. So we are now talking about 90 days instead. Uh, anyway, besides the point, it's kind of a roughly two-day workshop with all the teams where sometimes we do stuff all together. Sometimes it's just a team and uh, product owners and sort of people on that level where we say, hey, this is the stuff we want to do here are the challenges Here's maybe other teams that we might depend on doing some of the work and i think the main point after that is to present to the whole round what we will be doing because mm-hmm. it's that's one of the things that was actually missing i think each team knew what they were doing but they w- weren't really sure what the others were doing mm-hmm. um and it's kind of not. On the one hand, it's nice to know what the rest is doing, where the company is moving. Um, But sometimes there are some dependencies that no one thought of. Someone in the bigger round actually brings them up. And then we are actually doing our second rounds of OKRs. Okay. I think they kind of worked. So I've always been a fan of OKRs anyway, because I like numbers and I'm going (laughs) up towards a goal. That's sort of one of my, my things, right? Tiny steps towards a goal is something that motivates me. So they naturally work for me. But I think they were also kind of nice. We had these constraints of saying, hey, there's this one strategic objective you're working towards, and then you can have some secondary if you want to. And it was kind of nice to basically focus the teams, I think, to say, hey, Mm -hmm. here are the two, maybe three things we will be working on in the 90 days. Because if it's in objective you want to actually reach it so you're not picking stuff that is totally totally out of realm of possibilities. so it's kind of nice to i think force the teams a bit to say hey these are the things that we think are realistic or at least could maybe if we are lucky achievable that sort of but nothing that is sort of just a dream (laughs) Mm. from someone outside that's kind of nice i think
1: does the planning inform the OKRs or vice versa?
0: Yeah, I think that's still something we need to uh, work on because at least for my team, they we had our OKRs and our plan before we even went into the meeting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: So it was kind of nice, but not 100%. I don't know. It's, it's obviously for each team, they have to spend a lot more time before... Just, I mean, two days and you plan for 90 days, that's just not happening. That's
1: if your team has already an objective and is still worth pursuing that objective, uh, then you don't need that much work actually around figuring out, oh, where should we go? Like, it's kind of a given.
0: I think the order isn't perfect yet. So, there was in the, I think, in the first day of that, uh, two day planning session there was like the cto and uh, the head of product they actually presented stuff which should have been the input for figuring out what the team works on but essentially i don't know how it was for the other teams but for our team we had already figured out what we would work on right so Mm -hmm. i think we need to stretch this out a bit more than just in those two days but yeah i think it's we are getting there i would say It's not the perfect setup, but it's much better than it was before, where basically each team works on their own thing and they don't necessarily know what the others are doing.
1: Interesting. I mean, we have quarterly planning, or we started having quarterly planning. I mean, the teams were doing that also in the past. What I think changed substantially since the arrival of the new CPO and the arrival of my PM that is leading a lot of these initiatives is that those plans have been actually discussed in a round of sessions with, I mean, you can consider engineering a stakeholder to product. So there were a few sessions in which we discussed uh, what was the very basic, what is the, what is really our objective as a company? What is that we want to, to do? Uh, which are the users we want to speak to? What are our most important, well, how do you say that in English? Assets. That's what I wanted Mm -hmm. to say. And based on that, there was a reshaping, uh, so a a bit of a reorg within product engineering. New teams were formed. Others where the objectives were still the same. They would stay the same, like mine, for example. But the most important part was that we had a few conversations with the PM to come up with a roadmap that then we presented to other teams that might have uh, some interest in what we would do. And then there's a company accessible source where you can go and look at these roadmaps moving over time. Um, so it, it has become very tangible. I mean, it's What I like about it is that it's an iterative way of working. So we did this, then we're now starting to define, how do we define those initiatives? Uh, How do we come up with, you know, like the milestones of proper documentation and so on? And of course, those initiatives, that planning was informed by the former OKRs, the one of the quarter that was uh, starting. But I think, or at least in my experience, there's also a lot of feedback signal coming back to the OKRs, whether it's actually feasible or not. And there, you know, like you also steer a little bit the objectives.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to see how it plays out. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's good that we are moving somewhere where we say, hey, this process isn't yet perfect. You need to try out stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess that's the main thing.
1: How collaborative was discussing these things with the other teams did you see some challenging moments in aligning or was it more like uh, oh cool
0: cool 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 so for our team there wasn't much because we are sort of on on a bit on the outside of the whole um, ecosystem um, we basically do, do our own thing we are also very mature team I think it's like three of the four developers are fairly senior so it's If we need to do something somewhere we just do it and we don't necessarily wait on other teams to find capacity on their side Mm -hmm. so for us it wasn't a big issue i think for other teams there might have been a bit more but i think by now it's more about they've already talked about stuff before Mm. i think we're already at a place where they say hey now this team is doing this and then the other team might depend on it and this is more of a safeguard partially as well, to say, hey, this is the last opportunity, basically, before we go ahead for someone to say, hey, but have you thought about this? I think.
1: Interesting.
0: And now with the uh, software architect that had recently started, Mm. um, I think it's also getting better, sort of ramping up still, trying to understand what all teams are doing. But I think this will also help prevent stuff like that where there are surprises of dependencies.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's true. I can tell you that dependencies are there. <laughs> I think that's a fact of life.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and in one of the following episodes, we can talk about it of res- reshuffling of, requ- of of responsibilities of teams. I think that's something that oh, will come yes. up eventually uh, because there's a confluence page and then there's reality. And we are, we might yeah. need to realize them <laughs> eventually. Yes.
1: Is there any documentation that is not really living documentation these days? (laughs) No, but that's true. Like, um, I don't know. Like, I I would prefer to have a Confluence page than the Excel file that is outdated and not updated at the moment. But (laughs) anyways.
0: All right. So that was one of my things. Hmm. It's going, we're getting there, but obviously that's the hard part of software development yeah and not the coding what about you
1: at the moment i'm still thinking about this uh this one thing you said about uh, um dependencies among teams and the areas of responsibilities you know because this week exactly i was um so (laughs) speaking of reshuffling exactly this week uh one of the so one of the engineers that was in my team Move to uh, another team after the uh, reduction in force. And they are working in an area that is not exactly something that my team is working on, but it has an impact on uh, on the product that we uh, that we ship because it's the main hub uh, through which uh, the user is uh, accessing the therapy that we provide. If they are restructuring that area, we have to make sure that we are not impacting the effectiveness of the therapy. Uh, And therefore, we need to very uh, likely we will have to, uh, if we get approved, we are going to have to submit uh, what is called a significant change um, notice. So there is a significant change in the medical device and so on and so forth. Now, this guy, he's going on holiday. Mostly this project, I when it was presented to me during this planning session, uh, roadmap planning, um, my question as the owner of uh, the, well, one of the owners of the European space, I was like, okay, is this going to be released to Europe? I'm like, no, no, it's not going to be released unless you want to, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, cool, 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 cool beans. And then this refactoring, this whole restructuring uh, started. Because this engineer is going on holiday, the chapter lead for the Android team joined temporarily that team so that he could keep working on the, uh, uh, on the changes and the team didn't have to stop. And rightfully so, he raised the point it's like, guys, we are having three versions of the central hub at the moment in our, uh, in our product because. Our three products are at a different stage of maturity from a product perspective. So how about we kind of simplify that? <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm what I'm thinking is that in theory or in practice, actually, my team was dependent, or this hub creates a dependency between my team and this other team. And as a manager, what I realized is that we should have had a uh, at a planning level, thought and talked deeper about this topic than just half an hour uh, on a random Tuesday three months ago. It's really nobody's fault, I think, but we should have seen this coming.
0: Yeah, that's always the point, right? Dependency exists. It's just important to know that yeah. they do, right? And where they are. And then the figuring out what to do with them is sort of the next step, but that's. Mm-hmm the danger is if there's a dependency you don't know about, right?
1: Yes. I mean, this is definitely better than having a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, actually, having addressed the dependency instead of just letting float by and then hit you in the back, that would have been better. So, that's what I learned. Let's say. Planning is not enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's a, it's a fundamental step. Uh, what about me beside this uh, interesting challenge of what I might then speak about next times? Um, I have an update on uh, what I uh, shared last time, this release testing, basically temporary hat that uh, I'm wearing, this release testing coordinator. Um I remembered, so a recap for those that don't know, it's like uh, every time we make release, of course, we want to test the release. In the past, it was the quality assurance team that was uh, doing that. And you have to imagine that because this is a medical device, it has to fulfill certain uh, conditions, also the process, not only uh, what the product Because otherwise you don't get the certification XYZ and this erodes the trust of users uh, or um, it outright doesn't allow you to release uh, or to sell your product anymore. Um, So when the quality assurance team was uh, laid off, um, some of us, the engineering managers, we took over kind of like that role, so we're not actually doing the release testing, but we are coordinating the activities so that this responsibility becomes a shared responsibility across the company. And we are moving uh, to, uh, again, we are improving this process over time with our learnings week by week. We have 30-minute session in which we reflect on, on the week and what went well and what did well every two weeks. Anyways. Um, because I remembered what one of my, well, my former boss told me once like, okay, if you want to test really something, push it to 11 and see what breaks. That's what I did. Uh, instead of doing the (laughs) test myself, like I did the first time around, uh, instead of asking my, the engineers in my team to do the tests because they know how the application is supposed to behave. I actually assigned a random amount of people across the company on purpose as far as possible from the technical side to do the tests. (laughs) You have to imagine that these tests are basically a set of steps that are describing what you should do and what you should expect as the behavior.
0: That's, That's also the thing that I'm... Having engineers who actually know how stuff is supposed to work, test things is actually probably the worst thing ever to do, right? Because then you never find the edge cases.
1: You know, that's one, and that's why... I'm not a big fan of the engineers testing being the ultimately deciders of quality of what they produce like the team itself the product team itself deciding on the quality um because you need that fresh pair of eyes to look at the details and the things that you would have never thought about like what if i insert the wrong password what is going to happen uh, or there was this one episode or one feature in my uh, in the product I was working for. So when you would send a reset password request, the, um, you could reset your password, but your old password would still work. And nobody thought about that. So if you want to reset a password because, I don't know, your account has been compromised, that's a problem, <laughs> as you mm-hmm. can imagine. So, yeah. you know, like... These details. It was like, okay, the code works fine. If I reset the password, it works. But nobody thought about checking the old password, right? Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: because that's how the database was structured, and so on. But um, I yeah. won't
0: go. in pre-COVID times. What you are doing is probably hallway testing, right?
1: Exactly. But these days,
0: <laughs> it's a bit more more advanced in technology and yes. assigned to various people.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so I picked a few people and I asked them to do the test. I provide them written instructions on how to uh, look at the test and uh, what to do while they were in, blah, blah. So how to use the interface. And I got so many questions back. So many. You have no idea. Like the first, I was fairly confident we would pass the tests. But then I started seeing all this red and I was like, what is going on? Why? Why everybody says that these tests are failing? Because, for example, many people didn't have access to certain parts uh, of the system, or um, they, and this goes back to what you were saying about, like, not the engineers testing their own stuff. It's true, but on the other hand, you need someone that is also, well, smart is not the right word, uh, but knowledgeable enough to understand what is supposed to be happening behind the scenes. and. Understand that the behavior, even if it's not exactly what it's supposed to look like, maybe there's a difference in a word in the copy that you have in the, uh, in the, um, in the test, or there's a few screens in between. Like, but ultimately, can the user perform that action? What is the status of the system after this has happened? Has that failed? Because if we're checking for copy, oh, there's plenty of tests that are going to fail. Yeah. Someone is updating the copy behind the scenes, who knows? Or maybe like we have carousels in our app and that content is controlled by the dashboard. So it might happen that one exercise is in the second carousel instead of the first. Is that really a failing test? Like, where is the boundary there? There might be reasons why the exercise is in the first carousel instead of the second, but then it should be clearly stated what to expect. So. And that's what one of the things that I noticed. It's you need someone that is knowledgeable enough about how the system is supposed to work to understand where is the boundary between a failed test and a and a uh, successful test.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you also have far too much context uh when providing information to others to really understand how deep you need to go for uh teaching someone that has no I don't know, like no real um, knowledge about that part of the system as you have. The example I was uh, doing before in the pre-recording was like, I gave this, um, uh, this test to someone where I said, "Is like, okay, log in with an active account. And someone was like, okay, but what is an active account? And in my head, an active account is an account that has an active subscription but an active account could also be an account that uh, hasn't been deleted or is an account that um, has received and confirmed uh, the account creation. So there mm-hmm. are far, there's a lot of nuances that I gave for granted that instead for others are questionable. And that's where I think there is value in, if albeit frustrating, yes, uh, but there is value because I learned a lot about what, how should I have behaved, if I really wanted to have uh, the rest of the company help us testing this uh, this product.
0: Yeah, and the question is, how far do you want to go, right? Yeah. How much context do you want to spell out, and how much you want to require from people who do the actual testing?
1: Yes, and another thing on top, how much time and therefore money do you want to spend making this a shared responsibility to lower the cost on your engineering team while sustaining the cost of, you know, like training everybody else in being a good tester. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So where is the, you know, that automation graph (laughs) with automation and manual crossing the line? Where is that moment? Uh, How far do you want to go? And it was an interesting and humbling experience um, because I I am the person I am. So I ran very often, like, oh, how hard can it be? I was like, it can be very hard, damn bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's my update.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's why they are testers, right?
1: yes exactly that's why there are testers and uh that's why i (laughs) backpedaled on my approach Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) yeah but sometimes you just have to try it out and see yeah for yourself why something is done and why it isn't right it's sometimes hard to have all the context and all the details
1: yeah so tell me about your side project
0: Yes, I don't know if it was last episode, but at some point we actually talked about my side project uh, with all the fountain pens and how it behaves a bit like any other, I don't know, startup, I guess, with all the mm-hmm. stuff you have to do. It's just you are not only the engineer, but you're also the product owner, the support and the ops and basically everything. Yeah, recently I tried to add a new feature and I realized I it was hard. Okay. And then I I noticed that I sort of had made quite a lot of shortcuts, like in when I'm working, I when I review a PR or write a PR, I would all, always write the tests and have everything really tested. And if it doesn't look nice, I would refactor it a bit and stuff like that. But somehow, if you're just the only one working on something, even I <laughs> just don't do it. So my project, it, the code isn't as clean. There's certain parts that aren't really covered in tests. I sometimes just deploy stuff and then realize it's failing and I have to fix it with another deploy without writing tests. And I guess it has, it did add up eventually to the point that now I really need to uh, spend some time cleaning stuff up. Mm. I also did an upgrade to Rails 7 and now I'm stuck with Still stuck with Webpacker and other stuff, and I'm on Bootstrap three and an old version of Font Awesome, and the design—I mean, it's not great either. And yeah, it's just a lot of lot of tech debt that, that I basically have accrued now. And I guess for the next few months, I will have to actually spend my time doing doing that stuff.
1: Interesting. <laughs>
0: And that's sort of the problem with with a side project that is, on the other hand, also something that people are actually actively using, right? If it's just a side project for you for fun, then it doesn't really matter. But these days, it's like, it's over three thousand active accounts, and you don't necessarily want to break stuff.
1: <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Was it difficult to upgrade to Rails seven in these conditions?
0: No, that was actually. I mean, I upgraded to Rails 7, I upgraded to Ruby 3.1. That was super easy to do, actually. Because, I mean, that project isn't that great, so you're not going to hit all the weird edge cases, I guess. Hmm. So not like you, I guess.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe that's something
0: for another episode where you have a bit more... Yeah, I'm waiting.
1: So, uh, Cliffhanger... Uh, we had an issue in production caused by the upgrade to rail 7 that we did. I wasn't part of the team that was uh, doing it, nor part of, like, my team was the one that made the change that caused the, the issue. Uh, what I can tell you is that it lasted something like 48 hours, definitely more than one day. And... I came back on Monday and I was following the what was going on. So it was a very interesting weekend for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh especially Friday deploy. And uh, so yeah. But I'm waiting for the incident uh postmortem and the report to give you more details.
0: Yeah, and then we can also discuss about being on call and how that's not a thing.
1: Oh in yeah. Europe, generally.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think we covered it at some point, uh, saying that I, I'm not sure what would happen if something broke in on the weekend in my company.
1: It was what was the name of it? Um uh, Mr. Must Colonel Mustard in the in the library with a candlestick for the funds. I'm a children of the eighties, you have to abide.
0: <laughs> Whereas I am just much more younger than you are, right?
1: Yeah yes so much younger
0: yeah <laughs> a few days maybe or something maybe I don't know. or I don't even know maybe I'm a few days older I rem- forget huh. yeah so what what I did uh sort of the other thing I noticed with the side project is basically I had a lot of ideas and I have a lot of things planned and it's an open source project. But uh, all the things I have planned are basically either in my head, in a notebook I have on my shelf, or as post-its on, on a actual real-life Kanban board on my wall. Mm. And it's therefore no surprise that no one is actually contributing. Because how could they? It's just a random Rails project. How do you know where do you start changing stuff, right? So that's sort of the thing with open source if you want to p- people want to have people actually contribute you actually have to spend the effort in making it easy for them or at least possible
1: that makes me think so in the past i tried a few times to help out with you know like you have Oktoberfest, you have uh, there's a couple of other initiatives here and there like uh, there is this uh, website called code triage where you can go and find projects that need your help, uh, open source, of course. So I tried to, you know, like get into contributing a little bit more. I managed only once exactly for this reason, like the issues or the, um, the problems that were presented by either users or, well, and other developers trying to use the project and then failing to do so because of problems, bugs, whatnot, or the issues created uh, by uh, the project maintainers were not extensive enough in the description of what to expect so that I could actually understand coming from outside, even if it was a language I knew, how to contribute. And sometimes even the... the how do you contribute to the project? It's not clear enough or it's not really, you know, step-by-step explanation. So sometimes you can't even feel like you can open a PR because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we all know that there's lions in the internet, so I would like very much not to have my face eaten by a lion. so. Mm -hmm. So that. It's interesting to see how high the bar for uh, our coworkers on the product side is when we are not the ones uh, writing those uh, those issues and uh, when requirements come our way, but how hard it is to provide that information for random passerbys uh, that would come and help with uh, with our project.
0: Yeah, and that's sort of only half of it, right? Mm-hmm. And then you look at the code, and someone sees that it's maybe not super clean and then they actually want to they actually have to want to work with it right because Mm -hmm. it's there it's not like they're being paid for it so you're gonna do the work it's just you look at the code and it's not nice and you say oh maybe i'll contribute somewhere else right yeah that's the other thing because the bar for open source is a bit higher in in that respect as well because people it should it If it's not fun for them, why would they continue doing it, right?
1: Speaking of which, people prepare yourself because Oktoberfest is going to be here soon. So (laughs) where people can find your project, Urban?
0: Yes. So it's uh, open source (laughs) on GitHub. Uh, We'll put a link into it. I've also started creating, uh, playing around with the GitHub project. So. Jira for GitHub, <laughs> essentially, okay. maybe not as bad Ew. and as featureful. <laughs> yes, maybe, I guess that's a good thing. So I play around. So currently, I'm. it's better than what I had before in terms of stuff that can be done and stuff that's put on the back burner, but it's still very light on details. Mm-hmm. Can I link? We can put a link to the project there. Yeah, like I said, right now, it's more about figuring out how to make the thing a bit cleaner because... There's a lot of stuff that could be developed but right now it's super hard to do because there's it's just hard there's a lot of yeah I did a lot of quick feature development and then so at some point I just need to go back and figure hmm. out I mean is test coverage for the Ruby side isn't that bad I think it's somewhere in the 70s but that's still a lot of untested code that can break and for the JavaScript side for there's some really extensive react components and they're basically untested. <laughs> so touching them is very very uh, hard and it's very easy to break stuff.
1: Yeah. I see. I see. Would you how many people have contributed so far to your to your project? Is it only you?
0: Basically, yes. There were a few people that expressed interest and looked around a bit, but nothing came of it, and I don't yeah. fault them because it's very hard to. It's not A huge project a company would have, but it's big enough that it's not easy to get into. I would say.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know. I need a project for winter. (laughs) I might help you ironing those issues just by asking questions.
0: Yeah, and then I will have to. And it's the same thing with as with your testing, right? Mm -hmm. I have a lot of context, but (laughs) now I need to put it somewhere that someone else can actually understand it. (laughs) Yes.
1: Oh, it's so hard to write good documentation and and uh, also good uh, good readmes and and so on. Everybody always points to this. I mean, it's out there, so I assume many people know about it. This technical writing, let's call it a course from um, from Google. It's free for all. It's really, I mean, in a way, it's basic stuff in the sense that it's those common. Sense kind of things. Um, it's like, yeah, of course. Why didn't I think about it? Like for example, do not use passive verbs. Always use the active ones. Mm-hmm. Do not use things like this all the time. Specify what this is. We are not here writing an essay. You are here to make things clear for people. So use the actual name, even if it's repeated twenty thousand times. It doesn't matter. Or uh, short sentences always have short sentences because it's more readable.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's targeted at the Germans, isn't it?
1: Possible. <laughs> but believe me, Italians can be quite convoluted. We are taught that, you know, like, oh, you have to write this way and that way. And there's very long sentences. They have to be musical. So it's, you're not alone, brothers and sisters <laughs> out there. But there's a couple of tools that are actually quite interesting to use. Uh, I don't have yet the paid version, but for sure, for one of the two, I would like to have. So one is Grammarly, mm-hmm. and even the free version is very useful because it helps you with synonyms, it helps you with a bunch of things, correct spelling, of course. But the second one that I discovered is called Hemingway, and uh, it allows for a uh, markdown for text, so it's already amazing in that regard. But it's a kind of tool that tells you exactly these kind of things, how convoluted your sentences are. Uh, And while you write, it becomes increasingly red uh, in terms of color. Uh, (laughs) So it tells you when you're moving towards the danger zone. Uh, And I found it quite useful to, uh, it's basically an automation for editors. So you on your daily job, it's hard to have your own editor, uh, and we are technical people, so we should know how to uh, how to write clearly. But it's hard. Therefore, uh, someone came up with that <laughs> to help us, um, and the paid version also allows for uh, picking the tone that you want to have. Um, mm-hmm. So, if it's uh, something that it's narrative, or if it's a technical document, if it's uh, uh, something that is um, supposed to be uh, conversational or not. So it's very well uh, made. I like it a lot, as you can imagine. So that's my shameless plug.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I t- try to just have a podcast and not write stuff down too do much. You know? <laughs> 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 it's easier.
1: <laughs> I remember you once telling me like, so I, I, I wrote to you that I would like to, you know, like, unroll our podcasts and make you know like an index of the topics we have discussed that kind of stuff and I was like you want to write crazy <laughs> like that's why we have a podcast so that we don't have to <laughs> True that yeah I never did by the way as you can mm-hmm. imagine but it, it's still in yeah. my to-do list you know
0: yeah <laughs> sounds like a lot of work as well yes not only writing but also figuring it out
1: yeah And that's the best way to procrastinate, find complex things to do. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. And to round it out, maybe a shorter topic from your side about, I guess, equipment.
1: Yes, yes. Um, An interesting side effect of the reduction in force we had uh, has been that, as you can imagine, a lot of equipment is back and that equipment is now in a storage room somewhere in a locker and um it's creating a little bit of a ruckus so what i mean here is there are so after x years as an engineer employed in uh, in a company you usually are um eligible for uh, changing your uh, equipment to a newer mm-hmm. one or if you have uh, some damage to your machine, you should usually you go back to IT and it's like, guys, I need another one. Having all the stock means that uh, IT, rightfully so, tries to be uh, cautious about the money we spend and is always proposing to uh, pick one of those machines. As you can imagine, some people are not that happy <laughs> because. Those machines vary in size and specs and um, characteristics. So you, originally you had a 16 inches MacBook Pro with M1, and then you get a 13 inches MacBook Pro with uh, M1. And um, that's where being an engineer comes. Uh, I think I thought this this past week that if you move, if you remove all the all the nice what is that uh, makes you a software engineer. The fact that you can code, right? And the fact that you need a machine. And in the end, laptops today are the staple uh, for us being able to do our job. As a backend engineer, I never really put a lot of thoughts into my machine. It was like, okay, it's cool. And it's like 16 inches, cool, cool, cool. I can do that. Uh, or it's uh, it has, 20 gigabyte, uh, 32 gigabytes of, of RAM. I usually notice that I'm lacking RAM because uh, Firefox is open on Google Drive uh, documents or something <laughs> like that, so <but> the <laughs> browser is eating all the memory.
0: You're clearly not running Docker.
1: <laughs> That's the thing. I never, I, and I know a lot of backend engineers that do the same also at my current company, I never use Docker. I always pin up my server on my machine. And that's what I was doing when I was coding more. Like I'm just, you know, like spinning up the services that I need to work and that's enough. And if I need something else, that was actually an interesting side effect of that behavior was that I exactly knew all the fundamental pieces to make our application work. And where the dependencies were, because if something fails on my local machine, then I know immediately that there's uh, a connection with a service that I haven't run, uh, that I haven't, uh, that it's not running right now. So was like, oh, that's the dependencies. Um, anyways, side uh, side track. <laughs> but when I started managing mobile engineers, I noticed that um, they were paying much more attention to this kind of specs. Because guess what. Sometimes if you have an old machine, it means that you, when you have to compile your project, it's going to take like, what, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sometimes one hour. Or running tests take takes, I don't know, 25 minutes, 20 minutes. You're not going to run those tests. And when you compile the application, because you have applied a change, you can just, you know, like... Get up and go take a coffee or uh, start reading something. Um,
0: <laughs> Reminds me of the XKCD with. Uh,
1: exactly. You people, know, like yeah. it's compiling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that is a lot of costs. Um, so I remember I actually managed to get the approval for a laptop for one of the engineers in my former team exactly for this. Like I, t- I told my boss and the IT person, I was like, this guy has to compile the project. And right now, what he can do is maybe compiling it six times a day, because it takes 35 minutes to, uh, to compile the project. Imagine you make an error. It's 35 minutes, you throw, or maybe it's not 35, it's 20, it's 12, but that's time that you throw away. And how fast can this guy go? Like, is... Having a new laptop for this person, that expensive, really? So right now, I understand our attempt at being cost-effective, but sometimes you can go the other way. And uh yeah, I mean, without the laptop, you can save money and tell everybody, it's like, no, we're not going to have two screens or we're not going to have touchpads. You're going to have your Mac and that's it. But you cannot really... You are not really saving money if you save money on the machine. My personal opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's sort of one of the, I guess, upsides of an interpreted language like Ruby. Right? It might not be the fastest, but if you change something and then you want to try it out, it's actually pretty quick. Yeah. I Also, I, I mean, I for a for the longest time here, I I had a laptop from twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fine. Uh, sixteen gigabytes of RAM was okay, and it wasn't wasn't much of a problem also because we started developing a new rails app and it's small in the beginning, of course, and has fewer tests, so it was all no problem. So I didn't necessarily notice when I got a new one absolutely in terms like, of speed yeah
1: I remember i could I could run the um, company projects on my twenty fifteen MacBook. No longer than two years ago, it's a very old machine. It had only four gigabytes of of RAM, but it (laughs) was. I mean, yes, it's slower, but it's not perceivably slower to the degree that I feel like I cannot work with this. And yes, that's. I guess I wonder if this was a design decision by Matts that of having an interpreted language, given how he wants Ruby to be optimized for developers happiness that was a decision and that a factor that contributed to pick Ruby as a an interpreted language
0: mm, maybe yeah
1: but speaking of nice to haves and speaking of our new reality of uh, being able to work remotely here and there i realized also uh, as a manager how hard it was to do my job with only my laptop <laughs> <laughs> so i was like okay someone must have thought about this. And I looked for a portable monitor. A portable monitor is a monitor that is lightweighted and that you can just, you know, like use uh, when you are on the move. And I found that there's actually quite some out there. Some of them are even optimized for gaming or they are 4K crazy. I mean, (laughs) they're usually more expensive, but I got one by uh, Asus and so far, I'm super happy. I mean, it's a 16 inches, not particularly fancy in terms of colors and whatnot. But for being on the move is like 700 grams. I can deal with that for less than 200 euros. So yeah, I'm very ne- happy about
0: it. Yeah, I never thought about portable monitors, but it somehow does make sense, right? It I does. mean the, All the companies probably have the uh, tech anyway. If they're building tablets, then you just basically remove... Exactly. 99% of the hardware, and you still have the screen left. And it's I is, mean, you can tell thing, that right? it's
1: paper thin, right? Like, as soon as it drops, or I put maybe a finger the wrong way, it's going to be broken. But it served me for like a month and a half now, and it has done wonders to my mental sanity. So I value my mental sanity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do too. That's why I work from home. <laughs> <laughs> But we'll see how that goes. I We have a um, trip planned for, for around Christmas and I don't have enough uh, holidays left. So I guess I have to <laughs> figure out what to do then.
1: Yeah, I guess you... I can lend you my portable monitor.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's fine. As long as I have a room and there's no other people in it, I think I should be fine. I think t- somehow that's my problem with going to oh, the office. Oh, you need portable quiet. Yeah. That's my that was sort of my problem with going to the office. I i couldn't concentrate because yeah there's other people. There's just so much <laughs> how do you on? deal with that?
1: Yeah. Like you're as we say in Italian, you're breaking an open door, so breaking through an open door. Yeah. But yeah, so that's all folks for today.
0: Yeah, you can tell we haven't uh talked for a while, <laughs> yes. so it's a bit of a longer episode. So we, if you do this more regularly, we might end up with the normal length once more but this is like a bit longer than normal this but was a catch-up okay. you know yeah sort of
1: not not the bread thing the food thingy.
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so how do we end this normally all right monica where can people find you on the internet
1: people can find me over twitter at uh, molly with an i uh, or you can find me on my website monica g.me um and there you can find all the places where you can find me. So uh, that's very convenient. <laughs> where people can find you, Urban?
0: So apparently you can find me on my side project. Uh, <laughs> we can also link to a profile, my profile on the side project where I'm, of course, user number one. So it's like slash one. That's just a cool URL, I guess. <laughs> um, but you can, of course, find me um, on GitHub, uh, especially now that we're linking to the side project and also on Twitter as UJH. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, give us feedback, have ideas on stuff, what to talk about, or just, I don't know, tell us how bad we've been doing. <laughs> uh, you can email us at hosts at expanding or you can also find us on Twitter as whatever the <laughs> link to the podcast.
1: Podcast is. underscore EB
0: okay true <laughs> yes or you just uh talk to us in person on twitter
1: uh, especially if you are a chinese lawyer trying to <laughs> ask us if <laughs> we want yes. to reduce our expanding beyond as a trademark <laughs> yes but thank you for reaching out people uh see you next time <laughs> bye-bye
0: bye-bye